I'd like to welcome you here to uh, New Covenant Church. I'd like to give you a greeting that my uh, grandmother always used. Uh, I'd like to welcome you once. I'd like to welcome you twice. I'd like to welcome you in the name of Jesus Christ. All right. We're going to go ahead and get started. We are all God's people. Um, and God presented us with some, with some resources that can help us uh, navigate this journey called life. And we're going to have to open our hearts and open our minds so that we can receive the resources that he sent us in the form of therapists and those counselors who are there to help us. Um, we know that there may be a little stigma that people don't think they need help, don't want to get help because of how they are looked upon, but it is a valuable resource and we need to tap into it. So I'm gonna go ahead and read a couple of scriptures and then we'll pray and get into our presentations, okay? The first scripture I'm going to read is from Philippians chapter 4, and it says, Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard yours and mine, heart and minds. And as you live in Christ Jesus. One more, and I'm going to read one from the Old Testament. That was the New Testament, Philippians. And that is going to be Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 through 8. And it says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. Okay? Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for each day. We thank you for every resource that you've provided here on earth for us to utilize. We know that you're the source and that you have provided resources for us. So Lord, as we tap into the things and the people that you've provided for us, we ask you to help us to open our mind, open our heart, so that we can receive help. We ask you for help, but then we close our minds and hearts. Lord, help us to open our hearts so that we can receive the help that you send from heaven. Every time we ask you, Lord, we know that you answer prayer. So we thank you for this day. We thank you for every speaker. We thank you, we thank you for every listener. We thank you for those that are on their way. We thank you for those that are uh, thinking about coming. Father, put it on their hearts to just be here. And we thank you for this uh, 
presentation that we're going to share in together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. First of all, we're going to have Miss Stacy Williams to come up and do some reflections and introduce our moderator. Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> As she said, my name is Stacy Williams, and um, I work in the field of early intervention with infants and toddlers, and I've always worked with children since I've worked. <laughs> so um, this topic is actually pretty near and dear to my heart as well, because I see firsthand um, how some of the issues begin and um, the effects of, that it has on children that trauma and mental health issues have on children. So um, it's a vital topic. I'm glad we're having the discussion today. I know, as Joyce Sell mentioned, that it can be surrounded with stigma and sometimes prevent people from getting the help that, need, but, that they need. But I'm glad today that we're all willing to talk about it and um, educate ourselves and learn some new things um, about the topic. So I would like to introduce our moderator, who is my pastor, I'm a member of um, New Covenant Church here. His name is Reverend Brian Hudson, and he is a pastor, an author, a community leader, a missionary, and a ministry technology consultant. He is the founding pastor of New Covenant Church and Ministries, where he has served for 36 years. Pastor Hudson has earned degrees in Bachelor of Theology, Bachelor of Science in Media, Arts, and Science, and a Master of Science in Education with a specialty in Instructional Systems Technology. His education reflects his calling to serve God, God's purposes to serve God, and God's purposes in ministry, media, education, and education. Pastor Hudson's passion is teaching the Word of God serving everyday people and helping Christian leaders more effectively serve their congregations and communities. Pastor Hudson also conducts multimedia workshops with youth and other community outreach programs. Pastor Hudson is a former adjunct professor at Crossroads Bible College in Indianapolis and does missionary work to Africa, to which he's traveled on five occasions. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Pastor Hudson. Well, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for coming. Thank you for the speakers and panelists for sharing with us your expertise and your passion. And for those who are participating, we're recording this session on video as well to be able to play it back for people who won't be here to see it, experience it. So we want to make sure we record it and make a resource that can go back out to our community. Okay? Because you say mental health and people tend to not always want to show up, okay? Mm -hmm. But they might want to watch it on their laptop by themselves. However we can get the information out, we want to get that done. We do want to show three videos in the course of our time together. And the videos are going to be about mental health. In fact, we produced these videos a couple years ago. And um, I was contracted by organizations um, concerned clergy, 4A Side Action Coalition, the Baptist Ministers Alliance. Um, they asked me to help them produce mental health series for the urban community. So we're going to show three videos. The first one we'll show now is one called What is Mental Health? And we'll dovetail off of each other and off of the insights we gain from every speaker 
from the resources. I do want to say, as Pat said, I want to thank God for uh, Pat Satterwhite or Joyce Hill Ingram. Uh, they, in fact, Joyce Hill in particular, I think in February this year, in our in like a meeting of our leaders and workers, said we should do a we should do a health fair. I said everybody said yes, let's do a health fair. So we have been trying to do a health fair now for all these all these months, but we decided that rather than having one event, we'll have four or five events. This is the first one on mental health. The next one will have a different focus. So we'll have health fairs throughout the year because we are passionate about not just having events, but about having ongoing resources for our community. So thank you, Joyce Sell. Thank you, uh, Pat Satterwhite. Okay, well, here's the first video. It's entitled, What is Mental Health? Now, the big screen is over here, so if you can't see the big screen, they want to move where you can see the big screen in the middle. Thank you. So when you talk about mental health, it's, it's a big stigma. And we may call it something else, feeble-minded or, or uh, something else, but we don't like to call it mental health. And it's, it's a strong stigma. Mental health is a state of well-being where a person realizes his or her abilities to handle normal stresses uh, in their life, uh, able to work fruitfully, and they can contribute to their community. Mental health is the goal. Mental distress and mental illness are the problems needing treatment. A lot of times people interchange mental health with mental illness, but uh, a mental illness is a condition which affects a person's thinking, um, their feelings, and their mood. And so a mental disorder can um, reflect your ability not to be able to handle the normal stresses of your life. It may negatively, it's a condition where it impacts your ability to work um, and how you think. And it may cause you to have some behavior that's unacceptable behavior uh, in a community. And so, um, uh, so when you're having uh, panic attacks or when you're very depressed, or you may be schizophrenic, where you're having hallucinations and uh, you, you're not aware of reality uh, in your life. And so it's, it can be very, very uh, frightening for individuals. While African Americans make up 12% of the national population, we account for approximately 25% of mental health needs in the United States. The 25% is likely an underestimation since numerous cases of mental illness go unnoticed and unreported in our community. In the words of Dr. Janet Taylor, there are some African Americans who believe, I don't want anyone in my business and I have to deal with my problems by myself. 
without support from the community, or at least family and friends, how does the person begin to recover? New asylums, as the number of mentally ill inmates has tripled over the last few decades. The largest mental health facility in central Indiana isn't a psychiatric hospital. It's the Marion County Jail. Okay, okay. Water. All right. Sit down. In an hour of riding along with IMPD, suicide prevention and passer on the phone. There were five mental health calls. Person assaulted. Some were dangerous. This the dude right here. I'm gonna reach back here and, and take that knife, okay? That's, that's kind of a big knife, and I didn't want to, I don't want anybody to get hurt. Officers are specially trained through crisis intervention training how to spot mentally ill, perhaps getting them help instead of jail. How about we go to the hospital so you can talk to some people? You going you, to walk over to the ambulance? Every day, officers determine if a person is mental or criminal. We're now having our jails represent our mental health institutions, where people who have a mental health disorder or condition needs treatment and they need that level of expertise to help someone uh, be treated. Instead, they're arrested. Now, unfortunately, what do we know? 40 million Americans have a mental health disorder in the United States. That's roughly one in every five individuals have a mental health disorder. More frightening than that is um, a significant percentage of them are going to start their mental health condition at the age of 14. And by the time you're 26 years of age, 75% of all mental health disorders are going to be recognized at that time. Where people are being incarcerated, they may have a mental health disorder that needs treatment so that they're not repeat offenders. And we're not filling up our jails where people don't have um, the resources in order to treat them appropriately and correctly. We want to encourage people to have honest conversations and start with the people that you are connected to, your friends and family. Today, nearly one in five Americans are living with a mental health condition, from our children and grandparents to our veterans, co-workers, and neighbors. For all of us, our mental well-being is just as important as our physical health. But unfortunately, most of us don't know how to recognize the signs that someone is in emotional distress. And so many of those who are having difficulty can't get the help they need. Together, we can change this. It is important to know the five signs of emotional and mental distress. Personality. Their personality changes. You may notice sudden or gradual changes in the way that someone typically behaves. Agitated. They seem uncharacteristically angry, anxious, agitated, or moody. Withdrawal. They withdraw or isolate themselves from other people. Poor self-care. They stop taking care of themselves and may engage in risky behavior. Hopelessness. They seem overcome with hopelessness and overwhelmed by their circumstances. Have you noticed someone who used to be optimistic and now can't find anything to be hopeful about? 
You don't have to suffer and you don't need to wait. Help is always available. If you are aware of your uh, mental health disorder and you can identify getting a mental health specialist, uh, go and seek out a mental health specialist, but either a primary care provider or a mental health specialist. And that can be a psychiatrist, that can be a psychologist. Mid-America of Marion County, all of your uh, primary care providers, all of your community health centers, all of your hospital networks can direct you to the right person. And then it's up to us to show compassion, to reach out, connect, help folks find the hope and the support they need. Together, we can change the story about mental health in America. Together, we can change direction. So that's a good start. It's a good start to our time together. And again, we're very passionate about this issue. Um, and that assignment that I was given to produce the video immersed me in the research that made me sensitive to this very important area of need. We're going to now hear from our first speaker on today. And I'm so pleased to have uh, with us representative of the National Association on Mental Illness. Now, let me say, first of all, I was introduced to our speaker, our first speaker, by Carol Wills. Carol Wills is one of the really foundational persons in our community in the area of mental health awareness. And Carol works with NAMI and leads FaithNet, which is like the faith-based extension of NAMI. And uh, so I met Carol through Dr. Gwen Kelly uh, about three years ago. And Gwen's passionate about this matter as well. So we, I was invited to a meeting, and they showed this video at a NAMI meeting. So, uh, and also the voice on that video is none other than our own Miss Nicole Kelly. Raise your hand, Nicole. She's our announcer. All right. So Sabrina Suggs is a certified youth support provider, certified recovery specialist, serving as a peer mental health educator, and advocate for individuals impacted by trauma, mental illness, and substance use disorder. Challenged and maintaining her wellness and recovery from post-traumatic stress disorder and a traumatic brain injury as a mother of three, she dedicates herself to learning and modeling the skills to lead a fulfilling, productive, and a healthy life. Sabrina passionately serves as a face of hope and an active voice in her community by bringing education, support, and resources to families and individuals impacted by mental health issues. She entered the field as a program coordinator for social, emotional, and mental health programs within the social service organizations that, emerge, that engage marginalized urban youth. After witnessing the positive impact made as well as the tremendous need, she committed her work to expanding mental behavioral health education, resources and services to minority youth and families. She currently is a connection and family support group facilitator for NAMI of Greater Indianapolis, Youth Ending the Silence presenter for NAMI Indiana, steering committee member for Interfaith Coalition of Mental Health, board member for STARS for Children, and some other acronyms here, okay, all right, <laughs> okay. 
RA Fed, an adult member of the National Youth Advisory Council. So I want you to welcome our first speaker, Ms. Sabrina, or Bree Suggs. Welcome, Bree. She comes today. Thank you. Welcome, everybody, and thank you so much for attending. I'm really grateful to be here, and I really appreciate um, Pastor Hudson putting this on. Um, mental health is something that I'm very passionate about, and I'm very happy that um, there's faith communities who are engaging in this initiative. Um, it's a really great um, responsibility for people of faith who um, honor sh sharing hope, helping to provide a healing environment to um, include mental health. So. I'm going to go ahead and get started. Um, the main objectives that I'll be covering here today um, is, number one, to provide a description of what is FaithNet, how did it kind of get started, um, define what is mental illness and its scope, um, identify symptoms, um, assess the impact that it has on youth, um, help to identify what red flags, um, identify a cry for help, and what treatment and service options are there, as well as what does NAMI offer to youth and young adults. So NAMI, what is NAMI? NAMI is the largest grassroots mental health organization in the country. Do you want me to come close? Thank you. Um, they have a mission dedicated to build the lives build better lives of individuals and families impacted by mental illness, and their pillars of dedication include um, education, support, ag advocacy, and research. Uh, and they also serve as the leading voice to bring awareness to the impact that mental illness has on individuals. What is NAMI FaithNet? NAMI FaithNet, like Pastor Brian said, is an um, extension of, of NAMI. Um, and it's an interfaith outreach initiative that's encouraged to equip religious leaders and faith organizations how to be supportive and promote faith as, as a component of recovery. Um, the goal of NAMI FaithNet is to encourage the development of welcoming and spiritually nourishing environments um, and NAMI Faith is not specifically a religious network, but it includes, and not, it's not only a religious network, but it includes an effort um, to outreach to all religious organizations. So what is mental health? So mental health um, conditions are, uh, are the spectrum of conditions, and it is a state of well-being. Um, mental illness, which is also um, can also be termed as psychiatric illnesses or mental health disorders are medical conditions that can disrupt a person's thinking, mood, ability to relate to others, and the ability to perform daily functions. And just as diabetes is a disorder of the pancreas, mental illnesses are brain conditions that can result in the diminished capacity for people coping with the ordinary demands of life. I'm sorry. Um, they can affect persons of any race, any age, race, religion or income, and they are not, um, they are not a result of personal weakness, lack of character, or poor upbringing. Some serious mental health conditions include major depression, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, and borderline personality disorder. So what factors contribute to someone developing a mental health condition? Um, and there's a combination, um, whether it's genetics, environment, or lifestyle choices. Biochemical processes um, help to 
help to outline the circuitry of the of the brain and if there is an imbalance in the chemical in the chemicals that are available in your brain um, it could cause mental illness as well as unmanaged chronic stress um, and trauma all play a role although the causes of mental illnesses are many um, because there's still much to be learned about the brain um, there were historically not images that people used to identify brain uh, to identify brain disorders. So like someone would take a picture of a heart or electrocardiogram, they didn't initially take pictures of the brain. Now there are advanced research, um, research that is now using um, scans and stuff to identify some of, the, um, some of the issues that they're able to see within the brain that contribute to mental health conditions. So symptoms, we can all probably agree that everyone experiences a wide range, of, wide range of emotions, and that can include sadness, happiness, elation, or sorrow. Um, but mental health and emotional, mental health provides emotional mood swings um, and can inhibit, can inhibit, inhibit activities on life. Um, and chronic mental health conditions are more extreme than normal. So how do we know when someone we know might be experiencing a mental health condition that requires intervention and treatment? Here are some of the symptoms. Um, specifically focusing on, on youth, um, the reason why mental health is important to youth because that's when um, the identification is. By the time individuals are 14 years old, which is high school age, 50% of them exhibit symptoms for mental illnesses. So we know at a very, very early age. However, there's usually a on between the there's a distance between the onset of symptoms and actually treatment of about 10 years. So if you're 14 years old and you might be exhibiting symptoms, there's usually a 10 year delay. So think about what type of ramifications that might cause for an individual who is exhibiting symptoms and how it might impact their life. So you so 20% of youth um, live with a mental health condition um, and like 50% 50, 50 start by 14 and 75% start, start by age 24. And if mental health conditions aren't addressed, some of the issues that come up are substance use, suicide, or disconnection. And the interesting, also the interesting thing about youth is that because uh, um, that age of adolescence um, is involved with puberty, the brain is already changing. So it could be masked because some of the normal personality traits that go along and coincide with puberty might be masked as mental illness. So many families and people do not recognize these early signs of a unusual behavior as a treatable health condition. Um, and if mental health conditions go untreated, it can sweep away uh, an ability, the ability of a person to live um, a healthy life. So what is mental illnesses impact on youth? Um, let me start by saying Indiana is in a very grave position concerning like the statistics that impact youth. We are the number one state for youth ages 15 to 24 who attempt suicides yearly. And we are the number two state for completed. In addition to that, um, which, the, which some of the data reflects, is that we're the second highest ranking state with 12.1% of our youth po population suffering from severe depression, which is major depressive disorder. Um, also, a 5.13% of youth in America have reported substance use or alcohol problem. And there's a comorbidity issue where some people may 
see that there's an addiction and may not know that there's underlying mental health issues. So they may be treating or trying to support um, ind individuals for addiction and not know that there's some tie to, um, to mental health or mental, um, mental disorders under that. 3.13 million youth report the use of marijuana, cocaine, or heroin. 63.1% <clears throat> of youth um, which major depression um, never received treatment. So that's the biggest thing is once we do identify that there's an issue, if there's no treatment available and no one's accessing the treatment, then no one gets well. And also, uh, it also impacts education. Um, only 0.73% of students um, that have emotional disturbance, which is actually the, um, the children's term for mental illness, um, are, on, are set up with indiv individualized education programs. And um, some, of these, some of this data is off because they say that um, our school systems don't do a good job at capturing the statistics with IEPs and um, identifying symptoms for in, for young people. So some some of these things go under the radar, um, and how that impacts them. An individualized education plan is set in place to help support the um, the needs of someone who might be struggling or need extra help. And so if they're not identifying that they have mental health issues, it might be specific. Hey, they have behavioral health issues, or they're a bad child, or they're just you know aggressive, or they they're pretty much label and don't get the, the help that they need. And here's some more statistics um, on um, mental illnesses impact. 11.93% um, um, suffer from at least having one major depressive episode um, and the um, ranges vary from 9.87 to Indiana is on the highest for 14.64 for major depressive episodes. Um, severe depression. And yes, just over half of um, children with mental health conditions receive mental health services. So that's only one in two. So for every one that is identified, only half of them receive treatment. And the African-American community is significantly lower than the individual. So for every one person that receives help, there's only half of the African-American population that's receiving treatment. So our youth are... Um, might be um, suffering a little more. So how do we identify red flags? Um, going along with um, change direction, there are some things to identify. Um, so if you see a marked personality change in the individual, so parents, um, teachers usually can identify best. Like you're used to knowing what your child, how your child acts. So if you see something that's kind of off, that might be a red flag. Um, and in addition to um, their ability to cope, if they're kind of feeling overwhelmed and they're usually able to manage um, strange or grandiose ideas, may, um, may be symptoms of, um, of schizophrenia or um, psychosis, um, excessive anxiety, not being able to manage, um, feeling anxious or fearful, um, prolonged depression or apathy. Just because someone exhibits symptoms doesn't necessarily mean that they have a mental illness. However, if they continue over an extended period of time, that's uh, where someone might uh, be concerned. Mark changes in eating or sleeping patterns, um, thinking or talking about suicide, extreme mood swings, high and low, the abuse of alcohol, excessive anger, hostility, or violent behavior. And in addition, make a note of um, the red flag for um, excessive anger, hostility or violent behavior. Um, they're not specific 
Two, mental health, there's usually a comorbidity. So someone's more likely to become violent if there's the use of drugs or alcohol. So mental illness alone does not create an environment of violence. If you come from a place of violence or an environment of violence and then you might be using um, substance use as a means to cope, that's when there's uh, red flags for violence. So what are some treatment and services that are available to our youth? Um, one is psychotherapy, which is practically talk therapy. And there's um, several different treatment no uh, modalities that is um, that pertain to what psychotherapy or talk therapy is. So that can include cognitive behavioral therapy, um, what is it, acceptance, commitment, treatment therapy, um, exposure therapy, dialectal dialectical behavior therapy, et cetera, um, medication. Medication does not outright cure mental illness. However, it may be able to help with, it may be able to help, it may be able to help with the management of symptoms. The best way to use medication is in conjunction with psychotherapy. It is not a treatment by itself. It's supposed to be used in conjunction with psychotherapy in order to deliver um, results. Arts and creative therapy. Art and creative therapies are ways of using art, music, painting, or dance to express and understand yourself in a therapeutic environment with a trained therapist. This can be especially helpful for youth who find it difficult to talk about their problems. So also complementary um, therapies. Um, some people find complementary and alternative therapies helpful to manage stress, and some of the common ones include yoga, meditation, aromatherapy, hypnotherapy, um, herbal remedies, and acupuncture. And some of the other that um, I didn't have listed that kind of go along with um, alternative therapies are um, equine therapy. Some people use horses. There's some um, treatments, um, EMDR, which is electromagnetic, uh, elect, elect, hold on, no. EMDR, electromagnetic um, reprocessing. This desensitization and reprocessing. Sorry. So that's also a treatment specific for um, things like PTSD and um, severe depression. So in addition to treatment and services, what are some ways that we can promote wellness and support? So um, being able to maintain your health for your body includes your brain. So the same things that apply for how to maintain a healthy lifestyle coincide with your brain, with um, with mental health as well. So making sure that you're getting enough exercise and make sure that you're eating right and appropriate things, getting proper sleep um, is important. And if you find yourself in a position of distress, learning deep breathing techniques, using positive relationships like friends, support, um, peers, teachers um, are um, helpful and supportive for people with um, mental illnesses, as well as meditation, affirmations, yoga, and journaling. So in addition to the supports that are out there, NAMI specifically um, provides some support. So I am a youth and young adult support um, provider, which I'm certified to help bring um, to help bring support to young people. And the Indiana Youth Support Pro Program, Youth Support Program provides young adults the hope, support, skills, and confidence they need to achieve their self-identified goals. Um, individuals who have 
experience living with complex mental health issues um, support the navigation of service systems surrounding mental health and they are in recovery themselves. So um, the YSP's role is to engage young adults and support them as they move through their mental health challenges. And there is about three trainings coming up. If you know a young person who is about 18 to 30 years old who has experience with mental illness, NAMI will provide training for them to go without go out within the community to provide support to other youth. Um, another another way that NAMI helps is um, through um, youth mental health first aid training. Um, Mental Health First Aid is a public education program that introduces uh, participants to risk factors, warning signs of mental illnesses, and it builds an understanding of their impact. Um, it's an eight-hour course, and um, you, NAMI Indiana provides um, some of the training free. So we usually kind of market to schools, churches, um, coaches, bus drivers, anybody who's interacting with youth on a regular basis. Another, which I'm also a presenter for, is Ending the Silence. Ending the Silence is an engaging presentation that helps audience members learn about the warning signs of mental health conditions. So I've presented at some like parenting groups um, and told my story about how, um, how stigma affects youth and what we can do about it, um, schools, um, at some um, youth events. So that's also a way that you can contact NAMI and they can have someone come out and do a presentation. So um, the local NAMI affiliates that you can contact if you ever need information or resources, um, not NAMI Greater Indianapolis um, and NAMI Indiana. And here are some resources that you can use. So I'm sorry, I hope I was good on time. But does anybody have any questions? Yep. Thank you. Now we did actually include time right after speakers present to have a couple of questions. So, your question? Do you have a question for the speaker? Do you have a question? Do you have a question? Uh, yes. Um, when you say, um, like, eating well, I'm a person that you can see, I don't always eat well, then how does that impact? So um, I know specifically people who eat a lot of sugar, like, it can be toxic to the environmental individuals, um, as well as. Let me ask you, Sabrina, um, related to youth, that's your topic. Um, have you seen um, one or two best practices to help youth? I mean, how do you personally encourage? Oh, absolutely. Um, Come forward, please. And, yes. mm -hmm. um, what I really see often with young people is that 
they don't have a safe place to go and talk about their issues. And a lot of the stigma comes from their families. It comes from um, it, it comes from them. So one of the best ways is if you identify that someone might be that a youth might be struggling, you know, talk to them or say, you know, provide an open space where they can come and, and talk about things that that are very personal um, or that they might not feel comfortable to talk about. So that's one. And then number two, um, kind of supporting supporting their journey of being different. Like there is what I'm seeing is there a lot of expression, a lot of different things with the LGBTQ community, a lot of what youth are dealing with today aren't the same of what's been dealt with in the past. So being kind of open-minded um, is extremely helpful with helping them to understand how to navigate because we didn't have uh, electronics at the palm of our hand 24 hours a day. We didn't get exposure to a lot of things that we see that can be harmful, stressful, and traumatic on a daily basis. We didn't have access. So um, being able to be open-minded to what, what youth might be experiencing and that they don't, they're not in the same environment that you grew up with. So I hear often that they need some whoopings or they need that, you know what I'm saying? They just, they just need to uh, get it together or there's a lot of criticism so kind of be a little bit more open-minded um, to what they might be going through is, is what I found to be helpful. Thank you, thank you. Let's, uh, let's thank God for Bree, okay, well done. But thank you for your question too, appreciate that. Well, we're right on schedule. Um, our next speaker who is coming forward will be our own Dr. Gwendolyn J. Kelly. And I say our own in terms of her being a member here at New Covenant Church. Also, um, for many of us, she's been a great resource in many ways, having been an educator, as a classroom teacher uh, for a number of years, and, and, and also doing some over oversight and some instructional work. Currently, uh, her title is she is an educational consultant, vice chair of the Children's Policy and Law Initiative of Indiana. She's a board vice chair and co-chair of its Positive uh, School Discipline Institute. And to be honest with you, if I read all of Gwen's resume, we wouldn't have any time for her to talk, okay? But suffice it to say, Dr. Gwendolyn Kelly is an expert. She is a lady who has deep understanding of children, of how children learn, how the brain works, and besides that, she knows and loves God and incorporates and infuses um, genuine faith principles into her work. So without further ado, I want you to welcome Dr. Gwendolyn J. Kelly. Please come, Gwen. Good afternoon, everyone. It's so wonderful to have all of you with us today. And uh, Sabrina, that was an excellent presentation and introduction to uh, what we're trying to do with mental health and have an understanding of. So I'm going to talk a little bit about um, a project that I'm working on right now called the Positive School Discipline Institute, as well as some other information that I have gathered while being in the Institute. Um, we've had quite a bit of talk about what is mental health, and it does include the emotional, psychological, and social well-being. Um, it also uh, is it's uh, impacted by stress 
and how we, it impacts how we relate to others and how we make choices. And mental health is important in every stage of life, beginning at childhood all the way through adulthood. And over the course of your life, if you're experiencing mental health problems, your thinking, your mood, and your behavior could be impacted. And there are reasons, as Bree talked about, sometimes it's biological, sometimes it's life experiences that happen, and sometimes it's part of the family history, uh, traumas going on, and then the child gets caught up in it. And uh, as a, a Christian, I'm concerned that so often uh, the church uh, wants to cast out demons and do things that sometimes that could be the, the case. But um, I was working with the sorority on a mental health project, and one of the people on the committee had been, that's what they told her she needed to do before she got any medical treatment. And so we've got to be careful in the community that we're open to know that God has given us all kind of resources. I think doctors were created so that they could help the Christians stay alive. And, and you know who the healer is? It's Jesus. It's God. And so uh, I thank God for the doctors that have brought people through so many situations and the knowledge that he's given them. So what is trauma? Because I'm going to, uh, our institute that we're doing has a trauma theme running through it. So trauma is a response to a negative external event or series of events which uh, surpasses someone's uh, ability to cope with it. It happens with adults. You see people that come back from the army with post uh, disorder, uh, syndrome disorder. Um, it comes in many forms and includes experiences such as maltreatment witnessing violence, or the loss of a loved one. Trauma experiences can impact brain development and behavior inside and outside the classroom. Teachers nowadays are coping with what's happening with uh, the trauma that's being created in the community. They're seeing things that they've never seen before, as Bree said, and um, teachers, some, most of the time when teachers come out of college, they do not, they're not equipped to know what to do with children that have had trauma. When I was in school, I had no training on trauma. I, I was able to manage the classroom, but the younger teachers, many of them are unable to cope with what's going on. Um, they just haven't had, they haven't had as much training as they should. We've got teachers who are coming in with um, five months experience for the uh, Teach for America program and they stay for two, that the goal is for them to stay for two years and they're in some of the urban areas and uh, they just aren't equipped to do what needs to be done. And so we have been, uh, the, Ch the uh, Children's Policy and Law Initiative is an organization that does advocacy work. Pastor, I, I need to turn on this uh, timer. Do I, would I click on it? Because I don't want to go over my time. Okay, so um, we do advocacy work with legislation related to children's issues, but we also have, are doing this Positive School Discipline Institute. We saw the need for it because we were tracking data over a five-year period of time. And what we found in Marion County with the school performance reports was that uh, 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 one-third of the schools in Marion County were suspending three to ten percent. Uh, three to zero percent 
and then one third were, were suspending three to ten percent, and then a third were, percent were suspending ten percent or more. And some of those went as high as ninety-five percent. There was there's a school in the city that suspended ninety-five percent of their children, not incidences, but those numbers have gone down because the state has been monitoring. Uh, special ed data and so that makes an impact on general ed data. So we saw the need to start this Positive School Discipline Institute. Well, we, we know that trauma is real. It, it doesn't just happen to the child, it happens inside the brain. And between um, one half of uh, at least uh, two-thirds of children reported at least one traumatic event in, uh, at age 15. And one half to, uh, to two-thirds to two of children have experienced some form of childhood trauma. That's an amazing number. And it's exhibited in many ways. It's not limited by race, by socioeconomic status. You have a sheet. I'd like for you to look at it. And you don't have to write anything down, but I want you to look and see. These are the adverse childhood experiences that we're teaching about in the workshop. Sexual abuse physical abuse, emotional abuse, physical neglect, emotional neglect, loss of a parent, witnessing family violence, having an incarceration of a family member, having a mentally ill, depressed, or suicidal family member, and living with a drug addiction or alcoholic family member. When you, uh, we've used this and done a poll so that people could tell what their score was. Don't tell, you don't have to tell me your score. I'm going to tell you my score. It's a four. And um, when you have four or more adverse childhood experiences, you're very likely to have issues that uh, can lead to early death or uh, incidences with the law. Um, the more adverse experiences you have, the more likely you are to have problems. If you don't have some help that comes in, there is um, recovery. So this uh, graph shows um, some of the things that happen. We've talked about the drugs and the, uh, because you're trying to cope and the troubles that you're having in school. This is uh, two, two brains, and I'm asking what's the difference in one and what's, uh, why isn't, aren't they both growing at the same amount? The one on this side is a child that was neglected and uh, is a very severe condition of neglect. And this is a healthy brain on this side, but we know that trauma impacts the brain to the fact that it doesn't grow like it should. And then the trauma impacts relationship with peers and um, teachers in the classroom. It causes students to be disruptive. Uh, they have diff difficulty with social cues. If they haven't bonded with their parents, they have difficulty bonding with other people, other adults who are trying to help them. And uh, some children are very withdrawn, and then others are very aggressive. And so uh, you could have a child in your classroom who's very, very quiet and withdrawn, and they've had a lot of trauma also. Many times in the teen years, um, girls may have mood disorders, depression, and anxiety. And the boys have hyperactivity, screaming, hitting, kicking, biting. And we see that in the, in the lower grades too. 
um, we started this program thinking we were going to target grades 4 through 12, and everybody in the elementary said, no, we, we need help too. So we have a trainer that comes in from Walla Walla, Washington, who was at a school that uh, they were arresting so many children and the school was so much out of order. He had a calling on his life uh, to go there. And every t when he walked in the building, he got cussed out every day. So he went to a trauma-informed workshop and it changed his whole outlook on how to work with children. We put children out, we say, get out of here, we don't want to be bothered with this without giving them the support that they need. But when you're trauma-informed, you let a child cool to calm down, and then you talk to them about what's going on, and then you're able to get them back uh, into regulation, which is what it's called. Um, when there is uh, stress to the brain, the, the base of your brain, the stem, that's where we get the automatic things that we do. And then you have the amygdala, and it's the place where if you get agitated, you get angry, and many people operate out of that place. And then you have the frontal cortex, the pre, uh, prefrontal cortex, and some people have, this, another program has named this the not spot, you don't have to think about it, it just happens. The uh, hot spot, where you get angry and aggressive and fight and flight. And if you stay in a state of stress, it leads to disorders, it leads to health conditions down the road. Um, I'm in a pre-diabetic class and we were talking about stress. And if you stay stressed all the time, imagine a child is under stress all the time, it does lead to diabetes um, and some other health issues. And the power spot is where you're able to think through and do what needs to be done. So you've got to get a child to calm down, get out of the amygdala, and start thinking in the prefrontal cortex. And you can train a child to do that. You can talk about, you know, uh, you're working out of your amygdala. Some people call it the dragon place. You've got to come, I'm going to give you time, take deep breaths, and then you're getting to self-regulation. Teachers don't know how to do that. We haven't been, we had not been taught that. I had not been taught that. So, um, and it's a change of heart because uh, many times uh, when the principals who come to the training go back and they start implementing, we're not going to suspend all these children. The teachers get very upset because they feel like they're not supported. They want their kids out of the classroom um, so they can get a break. So we do a lot of things that make teachers feel good and adults feel good that aren't the best thing for children. Another thing that I talk about is, um, is uh, bias. Everybody has implicit bias. In the state of Indiana, one in 10 children is suspended every year. But African American children are suspended one in five. On the last report that came out from the Civil Rights Report um, from Washington, D.C., the school, uh, Department of Ed, we are second from the bottom with Missouri for suspending African-American boys. Indiana is second from the bottom. And we are fourth from the bottom for suspending African-American girls. And uh, with, I'm not even going to talk about the impact of that. Yes, I am, with the test scores. Uh, I'm not going to tell the numbers, they're just horrible. 
And so the things that are going on in the classroom are coming out and they're impacting the children's learning. And African-American children are scoring disproportionately lower than everybody, every district, everywhere across the state, across the country. So something is going on. There's that implicit bias, there's a racial thing that's going on, and there's enough research that shows that it's a true factor. But there are many teachers who don't want to deal with it and say that it's a real thing, especially because we have so many white teachers, and they think that there's, uh, they're, I'm fine, you know, what's wrong? There's nothing wrong, well, yeah, but there's a problem. No, there's good news. The brain is not fixed. And between ages uh, 10 and, and 14, there's another period of growth of gray matter. And so we can emphasize social-emotional learning, and that can go on all along. And it's too, when a child is getting ready to blow up and explode and cause confusion in the classroom, you've got to calm them down so you can work with them. But in the meantime, on the front end, to be proactive, you need, the teachers need some skills on how to de-escalate situations. And not, if a child is going out of control and he's dysregulated, is what we call it, if the teacher gets dysregulated, that's not a good situation. But if the teacher stays regulated and knows that it's not about them, something is going on with that child, they're able to calm the child down and then uh, talk about it and then come back to learning, which is the primary reason why we come to school. So uh, there are four pillars of trauma, about trauma-informed practice. Trauma is real, and there are ways to support recovery. There are signs, symptoms, the impacts of trauma that you can see if you know what you're looking for. And uh, you begin to uh, integrate new learning into interactions. And I'm, in, I'm working on policy things. Sister Patricia's working on procedures and practice. And anyone that's working with children in any way, you can impact all of these areas. And uh, you can uh, uh, resist de-traumatizing children um, been a lot of discussion about should children still get whoopings, <laughs> and that that traumatizes some children. I know I got some when I was younger, but uh, we're not doing that anymore. So we got to figure out some different ways to work with our children and to cause them to come back into regulation and to learn from the mistakes that they made. So here's five. Tr uh, this my my PowerPoint kind of got off, but. Uh, Five stresses, five uh, truths about trauma-informed practices. Trauma is coming from outside of the school. The children are bringing it in. And then we've got to do what we can so that we don't make it accelerated. Students need time to de-escalate and regulate behavior before trying to solve their behavior issues at hand. The schools need to have a peaceful place where kids can go and someone there to support them, and social-emotional learning going on at every grade level so that you, the, ch the children have coping skills when there's a problem. It's never about the issue. Teachers have learned, got to learn how to drop the mirror. And it's not about you. It's about the child and how can you help the child. And so it goes much deeper. It's a brain issue. And that's the thing that's so new. We had no idea how much trauma impacts the brain and the ability to learn. You cannot learn if you're all stressed out. And um, discipline 
is an opportunity to teach and not to punish. Well, I've talked about some of these things that are um, what happens if you have in, uh, trauma-informed practices. Your voice tone changes. You're not in people's face talking loud, but you kind of lower your voice. But you also stay authoritative. So they know you mean what you say, but you stay calm and do it. It's not wishy-washy. Um, you've got to learn new skills. And this, these are some of the teachers in our workshop who are working together. Uh, instead of uh, using fear-based punishment, you've got to use logic and high levels of adult self-control. Calm down. Children feel safer. They use regulation skills. They get back down to thinking. And they feel that we value them. Our presenter uh, said, how many times have you told children that you love them? And it doesn't cost anything. We, we're paying all this money to bring him there. But he's telling us, all you got to do is love the children and let them know that you care about them. And so uh, many people had never told a child that they're teaching that they love them, you know, that they care about them. You can say different things if you didn't want to say love. So um, if, you, if you've got a child that's out of control, don't overact. Give them strategy to cope with their anger after they've calmed down. Don't give it to them while they're in the midst of it because they're not going to hear you. Just let, allow them to take deep breaths and calm down. There are some other techniques, too. Uh, children like calming but assertive tones. I said that. Okay, one way to de-escalate a situation when you have a child that's um, out of control don't use you messages like, you just get on my nerves. You, uh, why, you, why did you do that? Uh, you know, the you, the you, the accusatory you. But we've got to use messages with an I emphasis. I expect you to do what I'm asking you to do. And I learned this uh, from a presenter that we had years ago uh, here at the church. Give children two alternatives. And that's what they're doing now. That was a long time ago I learned that and I used it. Give them two alternatives that you can accept. For example, if someone is rocking on their chair, causing a lot of confusion, you may stand up or you may um, uh, take, put your chair over in the corner and uh, come back when you're ready to work. So I can live with both of those. Um, or you may, you may stand up at your desk and work or I, will, I can take your chair and I'll give it back to you when I think you're, when you can tell me when you're ready to sit down. So the two, two, uh, two choices that you can live with. And that works on high school kids, it works all the way down. But you've got to be kind of clever to think about two things that you can live with. Um, so so he, there are eight things here that you can do to help kids calm, calm down. I'm, this is the last slide. Have them count to five or count to ten. Take a deep breath, as I said. Blow into your hands. If a child's just have them blow into their hands. Um, place their hands in their pocket. You know, just or hold on to your britches. Sometimes that's what I would say. Avoid um, antecedents to anger. That means uh, if acknowledge antecedents, so they're getting angry. So you know, watch yourself. You know, kind of give them a clue. Uh, make a fist and then relax your hands. Do a body scan, think about from top going to the bottom. And kids actually do this and they calm down. And you can ask them for a hug too. So uh, the main thing that we're finding out is that 
Relationship is the most important thing to bring about changes with trauma. You can't change a child's home environment. The only thing you can do is when they come, you give them the love and the support that they need. The single most uh, factor for children is to develop resilience against trauma or anything, is to have at least one stable and committed relationship with a supportive parent. I have story after story about one person that made a difference in one child's life. And you might be that one person, a child is struggling in school, and maybe God puts them on your heart, and you're the one that continues to encourage them and help them overcome. Uh, I've overcome four ACEs. I've had people to support me uh, at, at, all through when I was at First Baptist here, growing up as a little girl. I had teachers, um, people in the neighborhood, and so you have opportunity to be one of those people that helps children cope with trauma. Thank you. Okay, well, we're going to begin this video. We're now getting into Tanya's time. I want to make sure we, I'm going to extend your time too, okay? Yeah, we will. Okay, this second video is entitled Overcoming Stigma and Understanding Brain Development. do if your house was on fire? You'd probably call 911. But what if calling the fire department wasn't cool? What if calling for help wasn't safe? What if calling for help means that you'd get judged? For people with mental health challenges, that's exactly what it's like. And this is because of stigma. We end up having to have secret identities, keeping our pain to ourselves. For mental health, the ignorance has persisted. People used to think that if you had a mental health issue, you were possessed by demons or the devil. So if you were feeling sad and depressed, or experiencing mood swings, or feeling anxious, or having any other mental challenge, it was best to keep it to yourself under lock and key. Because if people found out, you could get shunned from society. How did we learn to treat each other so inhumanely? So in order for anyone to be accepted by society, we all learned how to lie, to say I'm fine, to put up a front, to pretend that we're good even if we're not feeling good. But here's the good news, we don't have to live like we're living in the past anymore. We've learned a lot about psychology, about how the mind works. And we know that there are many factors that can affect someone's mental health. Our mental health is impacted by our environment and by our life experiences. Genetic factors also play a role as well. I want us to be able to call for the help that we need so that we don't have to deal with the houses burning down alone. It's time to finally end the stigma because now we know better. And if you feel like your house is on fire, here are some things that you can do. Talk to somebody you trust. And if you're that lucky friend that someone is confiding in, be cool. Know that you're not expected to solve anyone's problems, but allowing that person to be honest helps. I just want to say that help is available and we don't have to hide anymore. 
A burning house is a major challenge that humans learn to solve with teamwork. And I know we can do the same with our mental health. It's time to be supportive. It's time to be brave. Let's help each other out. And I think a lot of times what we see in, uh, in our community is that uh, people will be looked at and someone will say, well, that person has a mental illness or that person is retarded or that person is slow. And it creates the stigma. It creates the embarrassment and the low self-esteem. And so people hide those issues as best they can. So I think if we uh, approach it differently, that uh, a mental health or a healthy mind is just as important as a healthy body. Uh, we don't have any problem talking to our friends about, hey, uh, you know, I'm concerned about your health. Uh, let's go work out together. Uh, let's go walk together so you can be healthy, so you can be around. Uh, we're a long way right now from people being comfortable with talking about it. So I think one of the things we can do to help people pursue assistance to have a healthier brain or a healthier mind is to learn how to talk about it with those individuals. If we, if we don't talk about it in the right way, then people will shy away from opening up and they will shy away from getting help. So, a healthy brain, you know, directs your actions, it contributes to your moods, and it also impacts your ability to think. You know, when we have high blood pressure, or we have angina, we use medications to lower our blood pressure. No one questions that whatsoever, it's not a problem. But when I add a medication to make up for that deficiency of that neurotransmitter so that now my mental health disorder is treated, we think of it differently. A child's experiences during the earliest years of life have a lasting impact on the architecture of the developing brain. Genes provide the basic blueprint, but experiences shape the process that determines whether a child's brain will provide a strong or weak foundation for all future learning, behavior, and health. During this important period of brain development, billions of brain cells called neurons send electrical signals to communicate with each other. These connections form circuits that become the basic foundation of brain architecture. Circuits and connections proliferate at a rapid pace, and are reinforced through repeated use. Our experiences and environment dictate which circuits and connections get more use. Connections that are used more grow stronger and more permanent. Meanwhile, connections that are used less fade away through a normal process called pruning. Well-used circuits create lightning-fast pathways for neural signals to travel across regions of the brain. Simple circuits form first, providing a foundation for more complex circuits to build on later. Through this process, neurons form strong circuits and connections for emotions, motor skills, behavioral control, logic, language, and memory during the early critical period of development. With repeated use, these circuits become more efficient and connect to other areas of the brain more rapidly. While they originate in specific areas of the brain, the circuits are interconnected. You can't have one type of skill without the others to support it. Like building a house, everything is connected 
and what comes first forms a foundation for all that comes later. It is important to separate mental health fact from fiction. Fiction. A mental illness means you're crazy. Fact. No, it means you have a mental disorder. Using cruel labels such as crazy or psycho only causes pain and discourages people from seeking help. Fiction. People with mental illness can pull themselves out of it. Fact. Mental illness is not caused by personal weakness, nor can it be cured by willpower. Proper treatment is needed. Fiction. People with a mental illness will always be ill. Fact. For some people, mental illness may be a lifelong condition like diabetes. But as with diabetes, proper treatment enables many people with mental illness to live productive lives. We've been saying loud and clear to anyone out there who's hurting, it's not a sign of weakness to ask for help, it's a sign of strength. And then it's up to us to show compassion, to reach out, connect, help folks find the hope and the support they need. Together, we can change the story about mental health in America. Together, we can change direction. So brain development is a key, isn't it, obviously. And mental illness isn't only behavioral. Sometimes it's actually physical, it's organic. And so we want to be aware and sensitive uh, to all of these, all, the whole range of mental health. And, and look, especially for the children, that they would come up in healthy environments and those who have been traumatized, reach out to them and help them, all right? All right, our speaker for, our third and final speaker for today will be uh, a person, a lady I met, we met through Patricia Satterwhite. Her name is Tanya Richards. Let me pull her bio up. And we are appreciative of uh, her supporting this workshop because she is, uh, among our speakers, one who actually is a practicing um, therapist. She's a counselor. And I read part of her bio here. She's driven, Tanya's driven by a life purpose to do immeasurably more by assisting people to, in reaching uh, one's highest level of overflowing spirit, nourished body, and a peaceful mind. She's a licensed mental health and addiction counselor currently pursuing a doctorate in psychology and Christian counseling. Her passion is to guide and support others encountering trials and tribulations, leading them to feel hopeless. Uh, so she does life coaching as well. She has been working with children and families for over 12 years in various capacities. Her experience comes from um, working in addiction services, both outpatient and inpatient, school-based therapy, outpatient counseling, as well as crisis intervention services and walk-in, telehealth, and ERs for the past three and a half years. ER is an emergency room? Community North Crisis Center. Okay, five years. Okay. She's trained in trauma-informed care and motivational interviewing and years of experience working with teens and evolving family dynamics. She supports um, and, uh, and 
She provides support and education in managing behavioral disorders, mood disorders, school-focused challenges, divorce, parenting, and family stressors. And I'm sure there's a lot more you've learned and you've gained experience in over the years, but let's just welcome at this point, at this time, to our workshop, Ms. Tanya Richards. Welcome, Tanya. I don't know what else to say. Um, after all of these wonderful videos and all of these wonderful presenters, I mean, oh my gosh, can I have a round of applause again for these presenters? I mean, fabulous. Um, I absolutely, um, that was my uh, bio for my private practice. I have a private practice as well as I work for Community Health Network. I absolutely am blessed and feel that it has been a calling that I work for Community Health Network. I uh, believe wholeheartedly in the initiatives that we do at Community Health Network. I work in the crisis department. I was led there. I believe that I have purpose and a passion and a reason that I that I um, worked there. I worked there starting in 2013 after my father committed suicide. Um, I was at Wayne Township, Ben Davis. Thank you so much. I was a school therapist there. Um, loved the work that I did there. Didn't want to leave there, but I had to leave there because God told me to. So I went and I worked at Crisis. Um, and I do Crisis work there. And then um, after I was doing Crisis work there, I was approached by Lisa Fleetwood and she asked me, hey, I heard that you were uh, a follower of Christ and that you have a, a strong Christian background. And I was like, who told you that? Well, I don't know. They just said that you were. I was like, oh, great, that means God's walking through me and that I'm the hands and the feet of Jesus. And I was like, yay, somebody knew that. And so somebody told me that, that um, they saw that through me, and I was like, well, I'm doing the work of God. And so um, they, they, uh, I was grateful that um, somebody knew that and that God was using me as his hands and feet. And so I, I have a private practice, and I'm a Christian therapist in my private practice, and I make that very well known. Someone told me one time um, when I was doing a business plan, they said, you might want to leave that out of your bio. Oh. You might uh, deter some people. I'm like, oh, I'm absolutely not. Um, that is exactly what I want people to come to me for. And so that is exactly what is in my bio. And so it's actually been at my platform and Jesus' platform. So, so excited to say that here I am now speaking for, for everybody and here in a church. And I'm so incredibly blessed. So I'm going to try to put a spin on what I'm going to give you guys. I'm talking about depression and our community as faith followers. So here we go. Use the arrows, right? All right. Defining depression. I'm not sure I can do any better than what we've already said, but depression is when a person is depressed, it interferes with the daily life of normal functioning. Normal functioning. It can cause pain for both the person that's experiencing and then also the family members, everyone around us, okay? Um, and the people that care about them, him or her. Doctors call this depressive disorder or clinical depression. It takes on many different forms. Um, I have a video here. Cue the video. Depression is the leading cause of disability in the world. In the United States, close to 10% of adults struggle with depression. But because it's a mental illness, it can be a lot harder to understand than, say, high cholesterol. One major source of confusion is the difference between having depression and just feeling depressed. Almost everyone feels down from time to time. Getting a bad grade, losing a job, having an argument, even a rainy day can bring on feelings of sadness. Sometimes there's no trigger at all. It just pops up out of the blue. 
Then circumstances change, and those sad feelings disappear. Clinical depression is different. It's a medical disorder, and it won't go away just because you want it to. It lingers for at least two consecutive weeks and significantly interferes with one's ability to work, play, or love. Depression can have a lot of different symptoms. A low mood, loss of interest in things you'd normally enjoy, changes in appetite, feeling worthless or excessively guilty, sleeping either too much or too little, poor concentration, restlessness or slowness, loss of energy, or recurrent thoughts of suicide. If you have at least five of those symptoms, according to psychiatric guidelines, you qualify for a diagnosis of depression. And it's not just behavioral symptoms. Depression has physical manifestations inside the brain. First of all, there are changes that could be seen with the naked eye and x-ray vision. These include smaller frontal lobes and hippocampal volumes. On a more micro scale, depression is associated with a few things, the abnormal transmission or depletion of certain neurotransmitters, especially serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine, blunted circadian rhythms, or specific changes in the REM and slow wave parts of your sleep cycle, and hormone abnormalities, such as high cortisol and deregulation of thyroid hormones. But neuroscientists still don't have a complete picture of what causes depression. It seems to have to do with a complex interaction between genes and environment, but we don't have a diagnostic tool that can accurately predict where or when it will show up. And because depression symptoms are intangible, it's hard to know who might look fine but is actually struggling. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, it takes the average person suffering with a mental illness over 10 years to ask for help. But there are very effective treatments. Medications and therapy complement each other to boost brain chemicals. In extreme cases, electroconvulsive therapy, which is like a controlled seizure in the patient's brain, is also very helpful. Other promising treatments, like transcranial magnetic stimulation, are being investigated too. So if you know someone struggling with depression, encourage them, gently, to seek out some of these options. You might even offer to help with specific tasks, like looking up therapists in the area or making a list of questions to ask a doctor. To someone with depression, these first steps can seem insurmountable. If they feel guilty or ashamed, Point out that depression is a medical condition, just like asthma or diabetes. It's not a weakness or a personality trait, and they shouldn't expect themselves to just get over it, any more than they could will themselves to get over a broken arm. If you haven't experienced depression yourself, avoid comparing it to times you've felt down. Comparing what they're experiencing to normal, temporary feelings of sadness can make them feel guilty for struggling. Even just talking about depression openly can help. For example, research shows that asking someone about suicidal thoughts actually reduces their suicide risk. Open conversations about mental illness help erode stigma and make it easier for people to ask for help. And the more patients seek treatment, the more scientists will learn about depression, and the better the treatments will get. So one in four people in the congregation may have a family member struggling with mental health issues, right? Yeah. All right. 
So we said one in four. I heard one in five earlier. I'm going to say one in four. I think it's a quarter of all people, right? Yeah. And that majority of individuals with mental health issues go first to a spiritual leader. All right? Or are first recognized by a spiritual leader. All right? So we have an amazing opportunity to make a difference. We have actually, we have a purpose to make a difference. I know it. And so we know that this is a uh, mental health issue. It's a spiritual issue. It is a congregational issue. And so 90% of those who die by suicide have a diagnosis and are treatable psychiatric disorder. We, what? Did we just say that? What was the percentage? Did I hear that again? Mm, 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 mm. Mm. Studies show that clergy, clergy, are often not provided with the resources to provide appropriate support and referral information. You know this, right? That's why you're doing what you're doing, right? Yeah, and so community has a faith-based initiatives uh, program. I'm going to share that with you here in a minute at the, uh, on another slide. And I was like, this is amazing. We all, too, have to have this responsibility to share it as well, too. And I'm so proud of community for that because we're large and, you know, we're a huge hospital organization. And so Brian Mills, our CEO, so proud of him that he would actually have this initiative as well. And so uh, marrying, you know, mental health, physical, medical health with faith-based initiatives. That's, that's awesome. And so um, a study released in 2012 shows that people with religious spiritual practices suffer what? Suffer less from depression and those with and who observe religious spiritual practices who do have depression recover more quickly than those who do not. All right, so this is, this is all good news. All right, so why faith communities? Why? Why us? Faith communities have a unique role in supporting and advocating for people living with depression and then those who care about them because faith leaders are often the first to recognize depression in a person or in a concern and family because pastors are the first to whom they may turn. All right, those with depression and the congregation already connected, and they have tenuously a source of help for that congregation. People of faith know that every person is of equal value. We would hope that, right? We, we teach that. We share that. We support that. And um, we serve. We are here to serve. And communities are numer numerous and locally connected, and we, we want to know the resources in our area. We should know the resources in our area, and we can share those resources in our area. Faith communities are by nature committed to the members and the greater good for those members, and they are the resource of care, love, talent, time, and commitment, and we are welcoming. We welcome all. We want all. Those seats are to be filled by warm bodies and bottoms, right? Okay. Oh. I just love this little girl. She is me. I'm just saying this is my man. Sometimes on dark days, I think, nobody cares and nobody is coming. Then I remember who sends thoughts like that. <laughs> and I straighten my crown. <laughs> I am the daughter of the king. I just love that little girl. She is me. I'm telling you. And so tips on fighting this silent warfare. And remember, we do not fight this depression. 
we, we, we need to understand this. The first thing we need to do is pray. We need to invite God to this battle. All right? Now, I, I am studying at Louisiana Baptist University. And my study is first psychology. I went to Martin University. I love, I love my degree. And my second degree now is my PhD, and it's in Christian counseling and psychology, and I'm marrying the two because they have to be a marriage. All right? We have to have clinical practice, and we have to have spiritual practice, and we have to marry the two. All right? And so what I mean by that is God has to be invited, all right, into this battle. And we have to pray, and we have to read his word, and we have to get some worship on. (laughs) I'm telling you, we do. And there is some... There is a time for confession in this. Know you are a child of God and let them know they are a child of God. But sometimes when someone is struggling, they may not be ready for that. But you are. You are ready for that for them. Expect healing and share with them that they can expect healing as well. Ask for help from a mental help Provider. I guess I said that's a help provider, not health provider. As a help provider, we're going to provide some help. All right. Scriptures for depression. I am from God and have overcome them because the one who is in me is greater than the one who is in the world. 1 John 4.14. I will trust in the Lord with all of my heart and not lean on my own understanding. Proverbs 3.5. I can have peace in this world. I will have trouble, absolutely. But I will take heart because God has overcome the world. I will not fear, for God is with me. He will hold me up. He will help me. Isaiah 41, 10. Again, I am daughter of the king. You are all child of the king. So I love, I love, love, love some of the initiatives that we have here. So havehope.com is an initiative for prevent suicide. Uh, it was also called Zero Suicide Initiative. They've changed it to havehope.com. And um, it is, uh, if you know anyone that is struggling, um, that is depressed, or that is geared towards like, teens, um, but also young adults as well. Um, they can go in, not sure if you're feeling depressed, you can take that little quiz. There's also a little assessment back there on, on the four computers for us currently. But you can uh, also call um, these numbers or text now. You know, everyone has that little text messaging. You know, even if you don't have data, you can text too. So um, 20121 or 800-273-8255. Um, so Community Health Network has that. It's for free. So it's really cool. There's all kinds of awesome resources. You can go for young adults, for parents, um, all kinds of different um, uh, videos on here you could watch, um, for educators. And then also we have our Faith Health Initiative. Um, again, this is something that uh, Lisa Fleetwood, this is how I got here today also. She introduced me through you guys. And then they have different programs. They're helping churches expand and uh, learn and um, through programs. And I'll share with you the programs that they have here. Um, they're just offering um, help for the nurse nursing community coming up. Um, 
resources, speakers bureau, um, and then monthly curriculum and resources. So those are some other things that they're doing. It's very, very, very new, which is really, really cool. Um, so I'm excited to be a part of that. So that's a very good question. So, so I work in the crisis area at Community North, and so I see the gamut and spectrum of different, the diagnosis, uh, DSM. So I see the assessment tool for everything. So there are all kinds of criteria. So like a physician that would see a medical, we have that diagnostic criteria for every disorder that comes across and you would look at what is someone experiencing. And so you look at, do they check off so many boxes for that, for that criterion? So dementia would have an onset of certain criteria and, and you would look to see that. And so depression would look something like, you know, two weeks of depression depressive disorder, um, they're not doing this, not um, contributing, they're, you know, you saw some of those things on that video, whereas dementia would look totally different in certain ways. So that's, that's what you would look for. Um, anxiety looks completely different. Um, you know, there's all kinds of different things that you could look at for diagnostic tools. It's, but the DSM is what we use um, for that. Absolutely not, no. I mean, you can have circumstantial depression, you could have situational. I mean, it definitely doesn't mean that you have to have medication. That's just one thing that you could have to address it. You could have psychotherapy, you could have, I think that, you know, she, Bree did a fantastic job of actually laying out a lot of different um, treatment modalities that you could use to address depression. but. Medication management is one tool you could use alongside of others. And again, let me, let me reiterate what Bree had mentioned in her presentation. I think she did a fabulous job of, of bringing that across, is that medication management should always, and I've, I want to say this, it is an always, it's not a sometimes, it's an always, it should always be with psychotherapy. Um, it should be paired up with. It's better and um, should always be um, conjoined with because if you just do medication, it's going to give you a change in that chemical balance in your brain, but it's not going to help you with the environmental factors. It's not going to help you with well, now what's going on with my brain and my body at the same time. So it should be com compared with and combined with. Yes, fabulous question. So yes, meditation actually um, is really good at, and it's alongside with other things too, but it pairs down, it slows down the body's system and the brain, and it, it actually can help reduce cortisol levels. It can actually help um, lower the levels in the body, and it slows, you, slows your brain and anxiety levels down and, and worries in your body. It helps you manage the brain, not the brain manage you. Thank you, Tanya. And I really appreciate Tanya showing us how it is possible to, com to combine the, the spiritual, the Christian, along with the clinical and the medical. That is so key. So I thank you, uh, Tanya. Okay, we're going to, at this time, call for our panel to come and be seated. And let me, uh, I'll, I'll call your name and you'll come. Let me introduce you. We're going to begin with Ms. Stacy. J. Williams. Amen. Stacy.
Master of Social Work. She works with Pro Kids Incorporated, Central Indiana First Steps. I don't have full bios, but I know that she has a great heart for children, a great capacity and professional approach in helping young parents and children. Next, Ms. Janelle Owens, <laughs> physician's assistant, a hospitalist at Kindred Hospital. Uh, and Janelle has recently been engaged, too, by the way, so yeah. <laughs> you got to give her a shout out, okay? <laughs> but thank you, Janelle, for uh, her, her expertise. Next, we have Mr. Stephen M. Jackson, Master of Social Work, <laughs> district social worker. School, uh, Metropolitan School District of Wayne Township. So thank you, Mr. Jackson. And now we have our speakers. Again, Ms. Sabrina Suggs, please come, Sabrina. Amen. Dr. Kelly, please come, Dr. Gwen Kelly. And please come back, Ms. Tanya Richards. And our panelists are going to give an opening statement, and they're going to speak from their area of concern and expertise in their field. Uh, from beginning with um, Stacy and then to Janelle uh, and then to Stephen and on through our speakers. And so uh, I've asked them, we've asked them to just give their thoughts on the importance of mental health and mental wellness from the fields in which they work. And so they'll do so uh, in five minutes and then we'll come back and ask questions. So we'll start with uh, Stacy, give us some thoughts about how you've seen mental wellness be an important factor in your work with children and families. Um, so as I mentioned in the opening, um, I work with infants and toddlers in our program and we provide in-home services to them, various types of therapy, but um, Dr. Kelly touched on um, the effects of trauma and so we see a lot of that. Um, also in my um, past job life, I worked with children that were abused and neglected and with children that um, have autism. So the idea that starting early with children to try to mitigate some of those circumstances is really um, near to my heart because um, I felt divinely led and called to the position that I'm in and, and the field that I work in because of working with children that were older, seeing the things that they had gone through, seeing those effects and how it manifested in their behavior. Um, and their ability to learn at school really made me start to look at wanting to reach out to children in, as early as possible to try to get around some of that because um, we've touched a little bit on brain development but that is so crucial when it comes to developing um, good mental health and so if a child experiences uh, a significant amount of trauma and um, stresses early on, it really does impact their brain negatively. And so I feel strongly about providing those early interventions such that we can try to change some of that because your brain is more, the term is plastic, early on. And so a lot of those things can actually be mitigated um, prior to them becoming an issue when they're school age or when they're an adult. Thanks, Stacy and Janelle. So um, I'm a hospitalist at Kendrick Hospital, which is a hospital that usually works with um, rehab, a rehab facility. We get people from Methodist, um, Eskenazi, all those places like that are not well enough to go home or to a lower level of care, but 
come to us. Um, I get a lot of vent patients, a lot of people with wound care and just need rehab. You know, and you see a lot of people that have other comorbidities with the depression and everything like that. And it's, it hinders, you know, their rehab and everything like that. So, um, and, you know, we try to get past that with that. So, you know, depression is real. You know, the stress the, and the, um, the anxiety and, you know, it can affect other parts of your body. It can affect, you know, your heart and cause heart attacks and things like that. So depression and anxiety and all that stuff is, is real. You know, it affects so much of not just your mind, your whole body. So, yeah. Very good. Thank you. And um, Mr. Jackson, yes. Um, as a uh, district social worker and one who's also just completed his uh, administrative license to be a principal, it, it seems to me one of the problems that we are experiencing is uh, the removal of services within our schools that are needed, not just by the students, but by the parents and guardians as well. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about, one issue that we experience now is self-medicating, and it's been talked about, uh, touched upon today, but I just wanted to say, and I never thought I'd come to church and quote Chris Rock, but Pastor, I promise you it's clean. Um, you know, Chris Rock once said that his mother would put tussin on an injury, you know, you break your leg, you hurt your shoulder, throw out your arm, you know, put some tussin on it. You know, unfortunately, nowadays, we have taken this to heart. And we've taken this Tussin remedy um, to put it with Sprite and codeine and other things. Mm. And unfortunately, now we've actually started pussing, putting Tussin on it. But it's to the detriment of what we're trying to resolve. That's where the issue comes in in terms of the self-medicating. And also, I just want to quickly just say, I want, you, I want everyone to understand that this is not uh, our identity. That this is a normative of society. Once we realize that this isn't what defines us, but this is the role that is partaking in society as a whole, then we have to un understand that the remedy also comes from society as a whole. It's not just black people or African Americans or Hispanics that are suffering. The world is suffering. There's a song out there, the world is going crazy. It's not going crazy. We just not listening. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And Bree? Yes. Um, uh, the reason why I got involved with NAMI is because um, I am someone who identifies with having and living with a mental illness. Um, and actually, prior to being involved with NAMI, um, I did not know that I had a mental illness. Um, I grew up in a very traumatic background, grew up on the Far East Side, near Carriage House, 42nd and Midhoffer, 42nd and Post area, um, as well as 9th and Goodlit, um, Hallville area, um, witnessed a lot of violence, was witnessed a lot of crime, grew up in a domestically violent household, grew up with a tremendous amount of trauma, abandonment, um, and that was the way of life for my household and everyone's household around me. What I did not know is how that trauma impacted me and how that trauma continues to imp has impacted my brothers, sisters, cousins. I see it prevalent in their lives through their behavior, their choices, and what they're experiencing. Um, and what hit home for me is uh, it took for my brother 
to lose his life, friends to lose their lives, not only to addiction, but to suicide. And when I became knowledgeable of what trauma was, my A score is a 10. Everyone in my family's A score is a 10. And I'm like, how can we possibly move forward? How do I keep them from being involved in the, in the judicial system? About 90% of the males in my family have had an involvement with the judicial system. Came to understand how mental health directly impacts that, it became my absolute priority to do something about it because we can do something about it, we can prevent this, um, we can get treatment, we can get services. So I advocate and I share my story because lives are at stake. And I see many young people, I work with a lot of young people who still don't know that they're diagnosed, um, don't know that they have issues, don't know that a lot of um, what they're experiencing had nothing to do with them. They were raised in an environment that cultivated that, that cultivated this trauma, and it and they weren't even responsible for it. So um, to dispel the shame is one of the biggest things for me, overcoming stigma by telling my story and letting people see a face to say, hey, you you know, I do say that I have an issue. I, I know it. It took a while for me to admit that, um, primarily because of lack of support of family, lack of understanding, um, and sometimes uh, some faith communities were like, oh, you need to be, um, you, ne you need to have demons cast out of you. You need to just continually pray, not giving me access to services, not telling me that there might be something medically going on with me. So um, it's important um, for, for us to continue to have this conversation and to continue to bring awareness to get our people some help. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Kelly. There's two things I want to talk about. One is the uh, personal side that you know, my husband died two years ago. I thought I was coping pretty well, but I wasn't. And I did talk to uh, my pastor, as you said, and that made and his wife that made a difference. And then um, I had a friend that I was talking to, and she pointed me to a Christian counselor. And if I had not been working with uh, Alpha Catholic Authority that had a mental health committee. I would not have been open to that idea. But we were, the, our goal was to remove the stigma. And we were working with NAMI. And so God directs your path, just like he's directed and set up this panel today for the discussion. And so I did see a counselor for almost a year, you know, as things were unfolding. And um, I might talk to her again. But in addition, I've talked to my pastor and his wife. So the two things come together. And um, they're making me whole again. Uh, the second thing, the juvenile justice connection is so real. Uh, Janae Hanger, who is the president of the Children's Policy and Law Initiative, has been in uh, juvenile justice for over 20 years. And so when the, uh, and I was working at IU Bloomington, working with uh, children who were being suspended, we were looking at disproportionality with special education. Special education is the key to get into a school because no one at the state level is checking what's happening with discipline and suspension and expulsion in the general population. But the special ed population allows you to go in and ask the question as well. I see your data for special education, but you're generating. It's usually worse than special ed because they're working to be in compliance with the law because if... Um, a school is found to be disproportionate in any area of special ed. 
at a, at a, a rate that's two and a half times greater than the uh, regular population, they lose 15% of their dollars to general aid for uh, remediation purposes right. or to, uh, to prevent children going into special education. So uh, the juvenile justice connection and the education connection was a, a natural match. Because if you are uh, suspended from school at ninth grade or, uh, or higher, usually 10th and, I'm sorry to say this, but 10th and 11th grade, if you are having lots of trouble, you're probably going to drop out and end up on a different path. But at ninth grade, it's kind of like a gateway. If children aren't passing algebra, it's a gateway. That language uh, arts class and suspensions and expulsion, you you're twice as more likely. I've seen numbers as high as four times more likely to be connected with the juvenile justice system, which is the school to prison pipeline. Mm. So that learning piece, um, I didn't say, you know, I'm embarrassed to say the, uh, the number, the percentage of children that pass ISTEP in Marion County. I, I, it was 25% in one district. And, uh, uh, in one district, only 15% of the African-American children passed our step. Yep. And it was like shock when I saw that. And when I looked at all the data from every school, it's almost the same. Uh, even the ones that are scoring high, they're like less than 30% pass. So we've got a real issue, and trauma is connected with it. When a child is, is out of school because of suspension and expulsion, because they had trauma, we want to say it's the parents' fault. You know, there's stuff going on in the home, and we know that we got to work with parents and we got to do um, work with the community. But when the children come to the school, the parents send us the best that they have. And so it's our responsibility to work with those children and do the best that we can for them. Is school for the children or is it for the adults? I had a supervisor one time, he was assistant superintendent, he said, we've got employees in our district that are buying houses and cars off the backs of our children and they don't even care about the children. So I think we've got enough educators though that do care. So I think that the services we're providing with the Positive School District Institute, I'm like you, I've got hope. We were at 17 uh, teams last year and we're hoping to get 20. And we've got on the table, IPS is going to be a part. We had four schools in Wayne Township last year, three in Decatur, two in Warren, three in IPS. So Marion County is starting to embrace this, and some of the foundations are starting to embrace this. Trauma is the word of the day. and Everyone knows that we've got problems that we can, can work on, and we can solve them. Tanya. Oh, and I'm Tanya Richardson. I told you just a little bit about me. Um, I came um, to where I am. Um, I wanted to be a therapist. Um, I sat next to somebody on a plane, and I, I, said, I was a hair size for 10 years um, before I went back to school, to college, put me through school. Um, I sat next to somebody on a plane, and they're like, what do you do? And like, I'm like, I'm a therapist. And I was like, oh, wow, I really want to do that. And so I went back to school, um, and I thought I wanted to be a social worker first. And I got accepted into school of social work. And then I um, ran across somebody that went to Martin University, and they told me all about Martin University. I was like, oh. I went and visited, and I literally started school like the next semester. 
and I was blessed with um, that degree and everyone that I um, went to school with there and um, love uh, my psychology degree um, clinically very very sound um, with psychology and um, came out there and went into addictions work at Terror Treatment Center um, and um, very, very much so because of the background in which I um, grew up in. I grew up in a very addicted home um, with my father. Um, my ACE score, I would have to say, would be a seven or, uh, or an eight um, as well. Um, growing up very much in trauma, didn't know I grew up in trauma. That was my baseline. Matter of fact, as an older adult, um, I, I would live normally and I would actually go and find trauma so that way I would feel safe. And so I didn't realize that until I actually went to school and started going, wait a minute, that's my diagnosis. Wait a minute, that's my diagnosis. Wait. And so knowing that I needed to seek help to be able to actually give and provide help was something that was very hard for me to understand and know. And so I still am in counseling today myself to be able to provide counseling. Um, and that was something that was extraordinarily hard for me to admit as an older adult. Um, but boy, thank goodness for not counselor. Um, and it takes a strong counselor to be a counselor of a counselor. Um, so, <laughs> so thank you, Chris Clay. <laughs> and so, um, I absolutely love the work that I do. I, I, I did find myself, um, uh, and, and God laid me down at least five times in 2013. Um, sometimes he has to strike you over the head, then he has to hit you again, then he has to lay you down. Um, and he did. Um, he had to lay me down. And so, um, for me to listen, because um, sometimes I don't listen very well. And so, um, he, he did that. And so, unfortunately, it was also with the loss of my father. And uh, he redirected my path. I was accepted into a doctoral program for performance psychology in um, 2013 and I was going head first into performance psychology. I thought that's what I was supposed to do, right? And so um, I was at Wayne Township. I was a school therapist there. absolutely loved the work that I was doing with, with kiddos and Ben Davis. And um, my father ended his life and I did not see it coming. He thought I would. I was a, I was a counselor. Did not see it coming. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but you know, I lost five lives in 2013. Never lost a loved one in my life, and lost five of them in 2013. And ended with my father, and um, and I knew then that something had to change in my life, and, and God awakened me. And so um, I did some soul searching, um, did some praying, lots of praying. God was ever so present, though. How could you be in so much peace and, and yet so much pain, God? And so. Um, uh, ran across Louisiana Baptist University and ran across this degree called psychology and prison counseling and then um, ended up starting my private practice as well and so um, went to went to community and do crisis work intervening where I believe the pavement you know meets rubber rubber meets pavement you know it's a pivotal time in someone's life where you know I, I don't want to live anymore and um, that is true truly paramount and, and uh, that's where we can intervene and we get to a place where uh, we truly understand where it's real and depression and you know somebody says that it's you know one or two reasons usually it's I don't want to be a burden anymore 
and, and they don't want to they don't want to tell you that or they feel like they're so isolated and excluded that no one loves them and that's the things that I hear so often and so um, that's where I got to be where I am today and so I'm so grateful to also be here and share that with you so, so much thank you Wow, you know, I've only got 15 minutes left for today, but let me um, remind everybody. The Bible says Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus was acquainted with sorrow. So I think about us assembled here today. We're all acquainted with sorrow. We've had sorrows. We've had distress of mind, maybe illness, mental illness, but we're here to encourage one another and then encourage others. Question, first of all, for Janelle. I'm going to entertain a question from you as well. Janelle, in your practice, you, you mentioned needing to help people and then encountering mental health challenges that hinder health. What's your view of the state of integration between the medical help and then the mental, mental emotional help? Is there integration? Are, are there people on site who are doing, helping with mental issues? Or are you not having that help and support? So unfortunately, at our facility, we don't have a psychologist on staff. Mm. You know, and that's a problem because a lot of patients, they have all these different comorbidities. You know, they have, um, they're on a ventilator, they have heart issues, all this stuff, which can cause stress and depression. And, you know, they're on these um, medications. And unfortunately, you know, as a provider, we don't have time to you know, um, put all our all our time into one patient because you have so many patients to see. And, you know, you want to help these patients, but you know, you're like, okay, you you have so much t little time, and you want to give them medication, but you know, when not, without having a psychologist, it's really hard because it's you're trying to put it together. You're trying to help them mentally, but you're also trying to help them with their. Um, their heart disease or anything like that. So unfortunately, we don't have a psych on, on staff. And I raise that question because I'm thinking we probably need to, at least from our point, advocate mm -hmm. that our health care coverages and plans incorporate the mental and the physical, right. integrate yeah. them, mm -hmm. because they're obviously, they're obviously related, you know what I'm saying, that we would you know, mm -hmm. ask and, and seek that from our providers. Okay, Mr. Jackson. Um, it um, would take one, for instance, um, secondary level students, which is uh, your middle school and high school. Uh, the biggest issue that we're seeing now in terms of mental, um, mental health uh, is brought on by illicit drug use. Mm -hmm. um, so unfortunately, we have a lot of students now that are taking, and, and it's not alcohol, it's pills, mm -hmm. it's marijuana, fake marijuana. Mm -hmm. You know, spice, Katie, all of that stuff. Um, that's that's the problems that we're seeing there. Um, but it's also we see it from the parents. You'll be you won't you'll be saddened by the number of parents that I've had come into the school. Hi. It's it's become a badge of honor to be loud, quote unquote. For those that don't know, loud is people that you walk by and they smell like weed, mm -hmm. that's a badge of honor. In fact, they have a saying, we have a saying now, oh, it's you are awfully loud or I'm loud. So, and, and uh, to answer your question, Nurse Joyce, 
if, if, we, if it's become a norm in our culture, a value in our culture that started at home, if it's not surprising that we're going to see it in the school. Now, how do we address that? If they bring the drugs into the school, then you have the criminal justice system that gets involved with it. If it's one that we suspect where things are issued, uh, where there is a problem, we can call in the families and have counseling and such. But the families have to show up. Mm -hmm. Just as well, and, and I love Ben Davis, we have the greatest football team, sorry anybody on the east side at Warren <laughs> Central. Uh, we have the greatest football team out there. Uh, but I see more parents that are at our football games than are at our parent-teacher conferences. So if we want to change, and I'm not blaming anyone, mm -hmm. all right, I'm putting the onus on everyone, that if we want the change to occur, it does start in the house, but it also starts in the community as well as in the schools. I hope I answered your question. You know me, I'm kind of wordy, so. Yeah. <laughs> yes, ma'am, uh, thank yes. you. Young lady, hand up. I can recognize young lady. First Thank off, you for asking that question. I, I just want to commend your bravery, like, and just how eloquently you express your feelings. Like, that's amazing um, because a lot of young young people don't feel, don't have that liberty to say that. So I want to say that you're very brave for sharing that, and, and, I, and I thank you so much. Um, we usually start with, uh, with parents. If you if you want to talk to your parents or if you feel like that's someone who you can talk to. But what I have found is that some young people don't feel like they can go to their parents. So identify who in your life listens to you or who in your life makes you feel safe and, um, and start that conversation. And what I would encourage to you is that if you have friends who are feeling like this, um, talk to them, support them, but tell an adult and keep telling until someone does something about it. So if you're if you're telling your feelings and you're expressing yourself and people aren't listening to you, it's not anything wrong that you've done. And some people don't have the information to, to know how to help. So if you can't find it from one person, go to another person. Go until somebody is listening to you and able to sit down and help you. And I trust that we as adults heard that question and answer in our own mind and say, let me be available. Let me yes, make sure everyone. I don't shut down a young person when they express a concern, however they choose to express it. We don't correct them. We don't shut them down. We listen. We take it in. Yeah. We're going to wrap at this point. Now, we can do this. We're going to let you interact with our speakers and panelists to ask your questions personally to them for a few minutes, if you don't mind, we do it that way. I do want to dismiss the meeting. Maybe you came with the need to leave at 1.30. Now, I respect that, so we're going to dismiss the meeting here momentarily. But I do want to thank you once again. Let's give a hand to all of our speakers and panelists. Thank you so much. And if
it occurred to me we might need to revisit this because it looked like we're onto something in our community. You know, we have, we now, I support NAMI and uh, I'm involved with NAMI as well, so we'll integrate with NAMI along the way, but I feel like maybe at a church in the inner city, maybe we can do something as well. And I have a unique perspective on all this as well, you know, with expertise we have here. So thank you so much. The computers on the desk over their table have a self-assessment tool, not a diagnostic tool. <laughs> we don't, we don't, we don't self-diagnose. We don't self-medicate, Mr. Jackson. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. We don't self-medicate, and we go get help when we need it. That's right. So we're going to close out in prayer, and we have more refreshments. We're going to show the final video in about ten minutes. We just start playing it. Uh, that last video it is entitled. Um, how do we support people with mental health challenges? It's a very good video. We'll show it in about 10 minutes after you get a chance to talk to the speakers, get a couple of pictures with the speakers, and we'll wrap up okay, that way. Okay? Father, thank you for this, for this day. Thank you for these, these sessions. Thank you for the insight, the encouragement, for helping us gain courage, Lord God, to get help for ourselves and helping one another. Thank you, Lord, that you are a man of of sorrows acquainted with grief. You understand what we go through. You were depressed. You went through situations of great distress and you know how to help us. And then you gave us grace to reach out to the, to the clinicians, to the therapists, to medical science. We have all these resources you provided to get help for ourselves and for one another. Now, thank you, Lord, that we will take advantage of the resources on the table. We will take full advantage of the grace offered to us in each area we've studied about, learned about today with from children to youth to young adults to adults. And Lord, we will not lack help. We will receive the help that we need and won't hesitate to receive it. And we thank you now, Lord, for a great day, a great afternoon, great services on churches on tomorrow, including here at New Covenant Church. Thank you for your blessing and favor in Jesus' name. Everyone say amen. Amen. Let's thank God for this day and session.